Praise the Lord. So much, so much could be said, right? That was beautiful. Can we give another hand to our music ministry? Grateful for you. So this morning we have a special, special guest um, who's going to speak to us. He is a a good friend of mine. Um, He's a brother that loves, when I tell you loves the Bible, and I don't say this, and I know some doctors, What I mean by that is I don't mean like the doctor that you go see. I'm talking about like some doctors of theology, guys that have gone to. But I want you to know there is no one, and I say this with all sincerity. I've never said this to Caleb, but there is no one that I have ever had a conversation with that when you're talking about a book of the Bible has such a rich depth of understanding of that book. It's not like he's just quoting a verse to you. He's like taking you to like where the scripture came from. And this is because this is a guy that loves, loves the scriptures. He loves his God and his Savior. And I'm, I'm blessed to call him a friend, to have him in my life. When we get together, if we're together for like two hours, I talk for about an hour and 45 minutes, and then he gives me the richness. So in 15. But um, Caleb is such a humble dude. I mean, I love him. You know, we have great conversations about scripture. He is the um, executive director of Emmaus. He's going to give you a little bit more information. I've posted a couple of times um, in Realm about Emmaus and some opportunities that they give. Um, Just just something that I want to encourage you is please connect with them. Uh, He's going to share with you two different things that they do, but um, just really the reason he has this depth is because of what he's going to talk about with Emmaus. He went through the went through the school himself, and um, you know, so he's gained so much from that. But he is also a teaching pastor at um, River Run Church, and so I'm going to ask you to put your hands together for Pastor Caleb Ives. Well, good morning. Let me tell you, that was some worship. You may wonder. I'm going to throw this into the crowd at one point, so stay awake. <laughs> Just playing. Um, I, so that's probably an exaggeration, the hour 45 versus 15 minutes. Um, I'll just say this, though, with Bishop Jason. I, I, I have loved time with him. And the reason I love it is that you are blessed with a pastor that deeply loves the scriptures, deeply loves Jesus. And I know I'm telling you what you already know. But I, I want you to not take that for granted. I, I see it as a blessing every time we get together and able to, to dig into the scripture. We, I usually try to meet with them and like there's an intentional reason. Like we're going to talk about this thing. And then we just talk about Jesus the whole time. And at the very end I'm like, oh hey, wait, wait. Can I email you that thing that I was going to mention? Like, oh yeah, sure. So um, my name is Caleb and I am, uh, I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. Um, first of all, though, I am a husband to Latoya right here in the front row. Yeah, that's right. So he's, he's just amazing. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. All right. So so here's what's amazing. So um, 17 years, right, is the anniversary today? Last Saturday was our 17th anniversary of being married. Yeah, that's right. All right, 17 years of being married. It's been great. And I'll talk about that a little bit. Well, not that too much, but the anniversary thing. Um, and I, we're blessed with four amazing daughters. My two oldest are in here. One of them just stepped out, but Lily is my oldest right here. And then I have Grace, and then Maya and Faith were all here this morning um, to be with you. And then also, along with that, Morgan, Morgan Faneff is here with us. She's on staff with Emmaus. You'll notice her. She's the one with the t-shirt that says Emmaus. Not, it doesn't say core faith. It says Emmaus, but we're one body in Jesus' name. Um, and you can chat with her. Uh, out, out at the table after, after service today. But just a little bit about Emmaus. 
first of all, let me say, it is a very surreal thing for me to hear someone say that I, I'm someone they think of as, as a person who loves the Bible. It's because I'm a pastor's son. I grew up in the church, um, and I was a youth pastor for seven years. I went to a Christian school, got my undergraduate in youth ministry and Christian education, and then was a youth pastor for seven years. And for most of that, did not love the Bible. Did not love the Bible. I loved Jesus. I loved worshiping. I loved prayer. I didn't love the Bible because I didn't know what to do with it. And I found myself consistently striving to preach a message and just struggling to flip through the Bible and hope I would land on something good. Or I'd get a word in my heart, a topic that I wanted to talk about, and I'd go to the back. You all know the trusty back of the Bible where you hope that word is in there. And if it is, you got like seven or eight verses you can go search for, right? That's how I was living, and I was longing for something more than that because I knew that the Bible is where we get to know this God that we have a relationship with through Jesus Christ. And the Bible is where we understand what he is like and how he works with humanity. The Bible is where we understand this thing called the gospel that apparently we're all supposed to be really excited about, but I didn't feel excited as much in my heart when I thought about it. I just knew I was supposed to be. And so in 2011, we left the church we were at and moved to North Carolina where um, I attended a Bible school, book by book, through the Bible in 10 months, just digging and digging into the history, the context, verse by verse, studying through it. And I came out of that year a completely different human. My wife will tell you I was a different husband. My kids would say I was a different dad. I was a different person. And even just standing here right now, I do love the Bible. But I fell in love with the Bible not because of the words in it, right? Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, I believe it is, he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but you refuse to come to me, who they speak of. So the life of scripture is found in Jesus. I, I love the Bible because I love Jesus. And I love the scriptures because I love the Father. And it's through the scriptures that I understand the character of who God is, what he is like. And I understand this amazing gospel that you know, seven years ago when I was in North Carolina, I remember the night when I was studying Galatians and I was sitting up at like one in the morning. And for the first time in my life, when I thought about the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ for me, I cried. And that was the moment when I knew something had changed drastically in me. And I'll just say this, we, Emmaus, uh, you know, I always thought we were either going to plant a church. I kept telling Latoya, we're going to plant a church someday. And she'd be like, I don't think that's the Lord. I'm, oh, no, no, it's God. Trust me, because it's my idea. It's got to be God, right? And, and the second thing was maybe we'll be missionaries. Maybe we'll be missionaries. But when I thought of missionaries, I thought of nations, right? A certain nation we would go to. Um, and then as we finished up our, my year as a student and our year together in North Carolina, we felt God clearly say, I'm calling you to be missionaries, but not to nations. I'm calling you to be a missionary to the church, to help equip the body of Christ to engage their Bibles and to follow Jesus in a life-changing way. And so we joined the staff in 2012 and have been a part of Emmaus ever since. We moved right here to Oviedo, 2015. We've been here now for four years. Um, and since then, we've added some new staff and and develop some new ministries. But again, our whole heart is to equip every follower of Jesus to engage their Bible, not in an academic-only way, but in the transformational way that is the work of the Spirit, using the text to change my heart, to change the way I'm living out, outwardly, right? To transform my life. And two main things we want, I want to let you know about today, and then I'll jump into the message. But the one, one thing is we have a school of biblical studies. We meet right over at Canterbury Retreat Center. If you know where that's at, it's right on Alifea, like, Right there. Uh, I, I'm, 
There, right there? I'm really bad at directions. I get turned around when I walk around a corner of a hallway. I don't know where I'm at anymore. All right, but yeah, right there, and, and we meet on Monday and Thursday mornings. We have a school that will be starting up again in two weeks. We'll take a, it's just a small community of people who walk book by book through the whole Bible from Genesis through Revelation um, from August till the end of May. And then the second thing we have um, is something called our Biblical Narrative Series. And uh, we have two different courses, an Old Testament course and a New Testament course. So in September, I think it's up here, September 23rd, it's $50 for the whole course. And you'll get a book that has outlines of every book and, and places you'll take notes on historical background and the themes of each book of the Bible. The whole purpose of that is to help equip every believer from different churches. We're doing it together with Core Faith and Oviedo City and River Run and other churches in, in the city here to equip us to engage all the books of the Bible. So seven weeks on Monday nights, we're going to have that course. And you'll leave that with some tools to help you understand and engage every book of the Old Testament. That's the hope. Now, if you're anything like me, there's two things that I'd say were true about me and my relationship with the Old Testament. It was usually the thing I never read because I just read my New Testament once, right? Um, and, and secondly, it was the place I always quit in my, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, Right? <laughs> Right? So the very first, well, the first one we'll do an overview of the Old Testament. The second session we'll be talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books, which I should say, that is where I stopped every year when I was going to read through the Bible. Somewhere in Numbers, if I got there, I'm like, what in the world? I don't know. Leviticus, we got leprosy and walls. I don't understand this thing. I'm done. I'm going to go read John. All right. So um, once a week. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But um, those two things, I'd love for you to pray about engaging in one of those. If you can do the school, great. We would love to have you. In, in that, we have discipleship and community times together. Um, but if you can't do that, but you're able to do the narrative series, I would love to have every follower of Jesus in this city connecting that together because we got the same book. We got the same book. No matter where we gather on Sunday morning, we got the same book. We got the same God. We got the same cross. And it's all about him. It's all about him. So... Um, yeah, so I'll just say I am blessed to be here. Again, you can check out things at the table um, and, and find out more there from Morgan in the Emmaus t-shirt. I don't wear mine because I don't want you asking me any questions. So, just kidding. Um, Bishop Jason, he mentioned to me that I had about 30 minutes, so I do have 30 minutes now. But I did, I will say this. I was scrolling Facebook. I was scrolling Facebook, and I watched a recent message, and it looks to me like I got 55 minutes. I'm just saying, if you've been here. All right, looks like I got 55. So we're ready to go. We're going to be jumping into Ephesians 2. You can flip there now. You can flip there now to Ephesians 2. And I want to ask you a question. Ask you a question. I don't need this quite yet. I'm just getting excited. Who are you? Don't answer me. I don't want to hear from everybody at once. But who are you? What is your identity? What is your purpose? Why do you exist? Where do you find your worth, your value? All that is really attached to this question. What is your identity? What is your identity? Where do you find it? And here's what I'm hoping to get today out of Ephesians chapter 2. It's actually a whole book about identity. My, my title, when I was in the school, I had to title the book of Ephesians. And my title was, One in Christ, United in Identity, Living New Life. And that's, the whole book is about that. But this chapter, we're going to look at the identity we are given in Christ. And I want to tell you this, that your identity, who you are really created to be, is not impacted by layoffs or retirement. It's not impacted by your grades, whether they're good or not so good. We'll just say that, right? It's not impacted by your geographical relocation if you move from one city to the next or one country to another. It's not impacted by the financial situation in your bank account right now, whether it's going upward or it's deep, deep in the red, okay? 
It's not impacted by being promoted at work or demoted at work or fired from work. It's not impacted by the loss of someone you love. It's not impacted by, by, a, by being a part of a family or removed from a family. It's not impacted by any of that. Your true identity is found in Christ. And I know I'm telling you something you know. I know I'm telling you something you know, but your true identity is found in Jesus Christ. You know, there's times that we're going to, like I said, be in Ephesians 2. There's just these moments, because I teach the Bible all the time, either in classrooms or churches or whatever it might be. And there are moments where I'm like getting ready to talk about something, and I think, this is so weird. This is so weird. Like, we're about to talk about what is our identity in 2019 in Oviedo, right? And I'm telling you that the best way we can discover who we are created to be is to read a letter written by a guy in a Roman house arrest in 62 AD to a bunch of Christians in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And you believe me. Like, that's crazy, right? That's crazy, but it's because of something that we say at Emmaus all the time, that the Bible is timely. The scriptures are timely. They were written to real people at a real time in real situations to just explain things about the gospel, about God, about how, how life works. But it is also timeless. So the Spirit infused, the, the, it's like the incarnation. The Spirit put on the flesh and blood of that moment in history and spoke something that still matters right now. And that's an incredible thing. Uh, it's a gift that we have. This is our book. You know, I think more than maybe any other religion on earth, we don't know our book. Christians, are, we tend to not know our book. And I'm not talking about this church. I'm just talking about overall. All the stats say that the church in America, we have tons of Bibles. I mean, I have like way too many on my shelf. And I, but I, I didn't know it. I didn't know it for years. I didn't know how to read it. I was technically biblically illiterate because I didn't know what to do with it when I opened it up. Um, but it's an incredible gift that we have. So we're in Ephesians 2. Now, identity. You are a brick, my friends. You are a brick. What are you talking about, Caleb? Just give me a minute, all right? You are a brick. In Ephesians 2, Paul's going to be talking to the Christians, the church in the city of Ephesus. We'll talk about them in a minute. But he's going to be describing to them their identity. We read half of that chapter already this morning. But in that, in that identity, he's going to use the, the, the imagery of building material. When he describes his individuals, he's going to describe them like they are a brick. So I'm going to join Paul and tell y'all, you are a brick. Now I want you to think about a brick for just a minute here. A brick by itself, what can it accomplish? I, I can think of two main functions of a brick by itself. Number one, I could walk out to Bishop's car and I could throw it through his windshield. All right? I probably am not going to do that depending on how it all goes this morning. He might throw it through mine, but I won't throw it through his. All right, it could be used to cause destruction. The second thing I could do is I could sneak back there before we wrap up service, set it on the floor, and watch you all trip over it on your way out and try to control your language because we're in God's house and it's Sunday, all right? So the two things it could function as is to destroy things or to be an obstacle. You see, a, a brick, a brick finds its greatest value in its true identity when it's in the community with other bricks serving the same purpose. So, so this brick could be a part of a hospital or a house or it could be a part of building a school, right? It could be part of a lot of things. Its value and its true identity and function, what it's made for is to be in community with others. It's made for that. And, and our identity, our pursuit of identity in our life is the same way. See, individualism, and you'll see it, I think, in your notes, but our identity is the same way. Individualism is like the greatest thief of our identity. 
This idea that I'm pursuing my vision, my dreams, what am I going to do with my life? You know, from the time we're in like middle school, you're asked to figure out which group you're a part of, right? Like what group are you in? Are you in the you preps, you in the sport, the jocks, you in the, what? okay, I really, really wanted to be a jock. I love sports, but I was like, I started high school at five foot, 90 pounds. It was the worst. So I had no, I wasn't smart enough to be over here with the nerds and I wasn't big enough to be with the jocks. I kind of had nowhere to be, so I found myself isolated. But all along, individualism, right? iPhones, right? We got selfies going. With social media now, basically everyone feels like they're marketing themselves 24-7. Individualism. How can I, how can I become important to the world? How can I become significant? How can I make sure that I, that everyone else thinks I matter even while I feel like I don't? Individualism individualism is a great thief of our identity because because our identity is found in community see when christ comes he he reaches out into this world he comes to this world of individuals of people divided up and he he calls them to a we culture a we mentality in the midst of an i culture right in the midst of a bunch of eyes he says no 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 we and then in the midst of, I lived in North Carolina for four years. We lived there together. And we also went to college in Tennessee. Long enough to pick up y'all. All right? Y'all. Jesus, when he talks about us, his language is y'all. In the midst of a finger pointing you, 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 you culture. Our identity is found actually together. There's a pastor named Timothy Keller, and he, he says this, that when you come into a relationship with Christ, I'm going to probably mess up his quote, so don't tell him, but he lives in New York. He won't know. All right. When you come into a relationship with Christ, we find we are far less important than we thought we were, but far more valuable than we ever imagined. See? Less important than we thought we were, more valuable than we imagined. And isn't, I'm so grateful for it. But we can be held captive trying to pursue our own personal identity. And what we can do in that is we can miss out on who we're really created to be. We're created to be a brick. We're created to be a something, part of something bigger than just ourselves. So I wrote down this morning just the thought that your dream is too small. And I was talking to myself. If my dream for my life is about my goals being accomplished and myself accomplishing this, this, and this, and doing this thing, and if my dream for my life is primarily mine, then it's too small. Because the real dream Christ calls us to is ours. It's us. And ultimately, it's his. It's us working together for his purposes. So we have this letter of Ephesians, and like uh, Bishop Jason said, I, I nerd out. I love exploring the context, of, like the world of these books. So I'll give you a, a really short version so I don't bore you. Okay, so we are about to read a letter in chapter 2 of, of a six-chapter letter written by Paul to the Ephesian church, right? The Christians in Ephesus. I know you've been in Romans lately. Also, I heard Bishop's been taking six weeks off from preaching. So he's sitting there right now. He's just chomping. He cannot wait. Be ready. Bring a lunch next week, all right? He's fired. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Hey, Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Ephesus. Well, what does that mean? Why does that matter? Here's why it matters, okay? Here's some things to have in mind when we open up this, this chapter of the Bible, is that Paul spent two years there in Ephesus, 
In the, in the book of Acts, you'll find that on his missionary journeys, Paul stopped in Ephesus, spent two years there. What does that mean? That means Paul knows them really well. That means when that church began and the gospel first came, most of the people there heard the gospel because Paul was the one that preached it or one of his disciples was preaching to them. It says in Acts that during Paul's two years he was there in that city of Ephesus, it says all of Asia Minor, which is a whole region of the Roman Empire, all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, heard the gospel during that time. See, Paul knew them. For two years he lived there. Also, Ephesus, is worth knowing, it wasn't a dusty, I think in the Bible cities, we always think of them as dusty villages, like sandals and stuff. 250,000 plus people live in Ephesus, one of the largest city in, cities in the world at the time. Quarter of a million people or more lived in Ephesus. It's a port city along the coast. And, and you've heard maybe of like urban migration, right? People tend to drift towards cities because there's work there. Why is there work there? Because there's money there. Why is there money there? Because there's people there. Same thing was true then. Everyone started moving towards these cities like Ephesus. So it's 250,000 people, but they're widely diverse. It's a major port to sail out of. So like our airports now, people gather there. Well, they gathered there at the seaports, and that's what Ephesus was. It was a melting pot of cultures, diverse in every possible way. Different races, different cultures, different socioeconomic uh, situations. It was very wide range there. And one of the main ways it was diverse is in religious beliefs and spiritual practices. You see, when people moved to that, those cities, they brought all their gods with them. They brought all their different worship. And they, they worshiped a ton of gods. In fact, when, when Paul comes there and the gospel comes there, there's this explosion of life. And one of the ways they repent is it says they all burned their magic books. And it was like some like $3 million worth of books. I mean, that's one of the fruits of the gospel in Ephesus. You don't see that in the other cities Paul goes to. But everybody's got a magic book, casting spells at their house, right? You see there these traveling exorcists casting out demons. There's a riot there. And the reason there's a riot against Paul and his friends is because one of the guys who makes idols to this goddess named Artemis, he's not making money anymore because so many people are turning from that goddess to trust in Jesus alone. See, it's a diverse culture with all different kinds of religious beliefs. It's a big city, a lot happening. And if you, here, here's what the, the life was like for the Christians. There were some people who were Jews. The church was made up of some people who were Jews. They've been trying to honor God all along. And then they found out that Jesus was their Messiah. They waited for it. And they believed when they heard from Paul. But along with him are Christians that were temple prostitutes a week before they became followers of Jesus. Some of them who used to do these night rituals and, and, and have the blood of bulls and goats poured over them to try to have strength against their enemies. They used to have crazy revelry, drunken parties out in the fields to worship Dionysus, another Greek god. I mean, just craziness. In Ephesus, no one ever asked you, like, what god you worship. It was, what gods do you worship? Everybody was practicing something called syncretism, which means bringing the different beliefs all together. Worshiping multiple gods. So this community of Jesus followers in Ephesus, they're diverse racially, they're diverse culturally, they're diverse economically. Some of them are the other person's boss, right? They're, they're, and they're diverse in their religious backgrounds. And as typically happens, the church starts out great. But Paul writes this letter because there has been a drift. 
There's been a drift of their hearts away from identity found in Christ alone. There's been a drift in their heart from the unity that comes from remembering we've all got identity together. And so Paul writes this letter to address that. Let's look at this in Ephesians 2. I'm just going to hit a couple things from 1 through 10, and then we'll spend a little bit of time in, in the last bit. 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. I'm reading from the ESV. This might, it might be different, whatever, whatever you've got, but I'm reading from the ESV. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what Paul says. He says that. And now this isn't you individuals. He's saying y'all. He's writing to the whole church. They're kind of fractioning up into diverse, into their own little like, kind of preferences and differences. They're fragmenting as a community. He says, hey, y'all were dead in your sins. Y'all were children of wrath, just like everyone else. Y'all were living in these three false identities that we all tend to carry, the death identities. And they're really found in these. Here's the three. I'll, I'll give them to you quickly. The first is what the world wants. He says, we were following the course of this world. Y'all were. And I'm saying, I'm in y'all as well. All right. We all were following the course of this world, doing what the world wants. And here's the problem with trying to find our identity and worth and what the world wants. You know what the world tells us? More. It's always chasing something that we don't have yet. Hey, when will you have identity? When you have value and purpose? Well, well more money. Well, I got the more money. No, more than that. Uh, more fame. No, 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 that's not enough fame. More fame, right? More influence. More, I got it. No, no, no. Get power now, right? Always more than what you have right now. The second is what the enemy wants. It says, following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the children of disobedience. What the enemy wants. And the enemy, since the Garden of Eden, has had a way of dressing up evil to be good. And then we eat it, and it ends up being evil, and it wrecks our life leading us and tempting us to consume what will destroy us. And he says, that's where you've been finding your identity. Trying to find your identity in this, all these different gods and wicked practices of your city and the witchcraft and all these things. You've been, you, that's what you were doing. Remember that, y'all. And the third thing it, he says is um, doing what the body wants. Living the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies. The third one is what we want. What we want. That self pursuit of satisfaction and of success and fulfillment. And he says, all those are the identities of death. And I have to think that when Paul writes that, he's saying to them, don't, don't start looking back at those things again. See, Ephesians 1 has just laid out to them in Christ. It actually, if you underline it in there, it is like 30 times in the first chapter, in Christ, in Christ. Everything is in him. But they're drifting away from that to start to focus on other things. So we are bricks, but how, how y'all are bricks, but you are bricks here. How did this whole thing start? It starts with redemption. It starts with rescue. We all started out dead in our sins. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a theme of remembrance. What's happened there is, is the first gospel. The gospel of the Old Testament is the exodus from Egypt. That's the gospel for them. They didn't have the cross yet. So when they think of God's rescuing them from death and their enemy and conquering their enemy, they think about that moment. And so then they come out of there. They're going to go into the life they now have in this God and with this God. And the book of Deuteronomy is written to them. And over and over it says, remember. Why? Why? Because Moses knows, 
at the time. Well, God knows, and he's speaking through Moses. That when they go into this life with God in the midst of the world, they're going to want to do two things. One is drift from their identity and start to become just like the world. And the second is forget their purpose, the unique reason why they exist in the world. So remember where you came from. and Remember what God has done. That's what Paul's doing right here in Ephesians 2. Remember where you came from. So second piece is verse 4 through 6. So he lays out, y'all got the same bad news, and y'all got the same good news. And it's 4 through 6. Here, here we go. But God, we read that earlier, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Think about that. By grace you have been saved. And, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read verse 7 as well. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Deuteronomy said the same exact thing. When, when Moses is talking to, them, to, the, to God's people, the Israelites, as they're going into their promised land to live the life God has called them to, Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 7. You can write this down. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of your enemy. So Paul says this in 1 through 6, basically. Hey, you're losing the sense of the y'all, the we identity that you have. So listen, remember the gospel. Y'all, y'all's identity is a gift of grace. All that we are as a people is a work of the grace of God expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ. None of us are in because we're awesome. We're in because Jesus is good. We're in because God is good, because he's loving. Now, it, it, what he says, saying there is it doesn't matter, Ephesian church and church in Oviedo. doesn't matter. Your race had nothing to do with you getting into this thing. Your, your economic situation, your bank account, your job, your educational backgrounds, none of that had anything to do with how you became a part of this thing. It is all a work of his grace. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love. And it goes on to verse 9. And I want to actually read verses 8 and 9. And then we'll keep on cruising along here. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Say boast. All right, here, why? Paul, why you got to say that? Why, why is he saying no one may boast? And one of the things that are really important when you're studying the Bible is asking why questions. Why does Paul bring up that no one may boast? I'll tell you why. Probably because they were boasting, right? That's why. Because even though we know at the cross, at salvation, that we're all at the same place, we have a way of walking this life out and starting to think we're different again, right? We start to rank one another and create the JV varsity freshman team. Like We start to sort everybody out by their giftings and their talent and how much they know. How smart are they? Were they able to memorize all the scriptures? Are they on the worship team? Are they not? Right? Are they working in the kids' ministry or are they not? We rank them and you have your way of doing that. What spiritual gifts do they have? Right? 
We start to categorize everyone, and we start to, without intending maybe, we start to boast. And listen, we've never lived in a time where people want to boast more than now. We absolutely do. That's why we always, pretty much always, post our good stuff on social media, right? We get dressed up as good as we can when we show up here, right? We try to, try to pull ourselves together. We say we're fine when we're not. We say we're good when we're not, right? We all want to be able to boast, and the last thing we want to do is lose what we boast in, right? And so that identity, instead of humility, we have pride. Remember the disciples are with Jesus, and they, they're arguing about who among them is the greatest. And Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. The greatest among you is a servant of all. And it's flipping on the head the way the world works, which is elevate yourself and get others below you. But Jesus Bring this new identity of this we culture in which everyone is a servant. Everyone is a servant. So Paul's calling them back to that. Paul's calling them back to that. None of us may boast. See, the cross levels society. It does. The CEO billionaire comes to salvation and eternal life the same way I did. And just so you know, I am not a CEO nor a billionaire. I'm farther, much farther from the billionaire. I don't even, millionaire, that's, I don't know. That's a long way from here. I don't know what that's like. But here, here's the deal. We come to salvation the same way. That's crazy. That's crazy. That It doesn't matter what my reputation is or what my status is in this life. The cross levels us to one spot. Recipients of grace, children of God via adoption by his spirit alone. By grace through faith. It levels society. It liberates us from the slavery to trying to prove ourselves, earn uh, respect, or prove our value. Just think about it for a minute. How are we doing with this? How are you doing with this? How much are you finding yourself striving to impress the world with you? Right? How much am I worrying at night about what the world thinks of me? Because the cross calls us to lay that aside and not worry about it. Let's move to 2.10. And 2.10 transitions us over. And I'm definitely going to go a couple minutes over. But y'all are all right. We're going, we're going to the beach, right? You're going to the beach. All right. Here we go. 2.10. All right. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So 2.10 is this transition. 1 through 9. How did this whole thing begin? You know what an anniversary is? It's really a celebration of three things. Three things an anniversary is about. And I know this because I just celebrated one last Saturday, eight days ago. Anniversary is about remembering how this began. We're going to remember and celebrate how this whole thing began. The second thing, we're going to remember how it's been sustained. We're going to remember how has this thing been sustained? How has this church existed for 17 years and been sustained? I'll tell you how. By the grace of God. By the work of the Holy Spirit. And by the faithful obedience of his followers. That's it. Okay, so we'll remember how this thing began. And it didn't begin because there was one person with the vision. I'll tell you how this began. It began with Jesus Christ. It began with his call to send out people 2,000 years ago to go multiply disciples of Jesus Christ and to form these little communities of people around him. Okay. Well, how is it sustained? By his grace. And the third thing an anniversary is about is reorienting myself to the purpose of this, this whole thing. Why does this exist? How did it begin? How has it been sustained? Why does it exist? And what happens here in 2.10 is this movement. 2.1 through 9, here's how it began. By grace, 
in fact, it says uh, we are created in Christ Jesus. Right? The, 2, 1 through 9 is Paul's way of giving like a creation narrative, a Genesis 1, for the church. Here's how you're created. You were all dead, children of wrath, but you were raised with Christ. You were saved by grace, and now you are the redeemed children of God. You are his workmanship. Another way to translate that is, for we are what he has made us. We are what he has made us. We are created in him. So let's say this. Your true identity is created in Christ and found in community. Created in Christ, found in community. We're going to move to that second piece now, found in community. Now Paul's going to do the same thing he did at the beginning. The first one, he says, let's remember how we began. And he talks about being dead and being children of wrath. Now, in this second part, he's going to take a different, different language, different imagery. And this is really where the brick comes in. All right, 2, 11, and 12. Let's look at this. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Here's a big phrase here. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's not a good way to be in the world. Having no hope and without God. No, 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 but Paul, but like, I was like a really good Jewish boy. No, no, all right, no. even you, I was trying to go to the synagogue, I was trying to, I was trying to learn the, th- no, no, okay, but I was, I was really good, I didn't do any of the bad sins. No, no hope and without God, no hope and without God. And he's talking here to a church that primarily is made up of Gentiles, which means they're not Jews, right? So how do they get into this whole thing, all right? And I know you've been studying Romans and digging into this, and I'll let uh, Bishop continue to take you through, take you through that. But in, in 11 and 12, here's what it's saying, strangers and aliens. First part, we were dead. We were children of wrath. Now we're strangers and aliens. Now just so you don't have E.T. in mind or whatever, when I'm talking about this, let me just walk you through what this is saying. If a stranger comes to your house tonight, knocks on your door and says they want to eat your food, I'm guessing there's going to be a little hesitation. You know, if it's like 1030 tonight and you hear somebody at the door, you open it up, you've never seen this person before, right? Well, here's what it means to be a stranger. It means you're not welcome in, right? You're not welcome in. Now, we know there's other teachings that Jesus does about this idea and how can we care for the stranger among us. But this is what Paul is saying. You were strangers, meaning you didn't know anybody. You weren't a part of the household. That's all it really means. It means you're not a part of the household. You can treat a stranger. I don't know how y'all would do it at your house. But... But it does mean that that person is not a part of this family. They're not one of the kids. They're not one of the siblings. They're not one of the parents, right? They don't belong in this house. They don't live here. This isn't their house. And so in the same way, the alien is the same idea where it talks about not having citizenship. Someone not given access to come into a nation, to be a part of a nation, to be a part of a community. So these two ideas, we were strangers, we were aliens. It says it again in verse 19. We were not able to come in on our own. We didn't belong within this family of God's people. It talks about circumcision there, and I'll let, if you want to know what that is, you can ask Bishop. Um, he'll explain it. But here, here's what it basically is, all right? Basically, here's what it's saying. So when the gospel first starts to spread, the very first barrier to the community of God's people growing beyond being just the Jews 
was circumcision. And I think you're familiar with this. You've probably been talking about it some in Romans. It was circumcision. It was, that was like the first act of ritual holiness to set yourself, to make yourself obedient to the law of God from the Old Testament, right? So all these people are starting to become Christian, believe in the same Messiah, the same Jesus. And the Jews are like, well, hey, 48-year-old guy, you're going to have to get circumcised if you want in. And uh, you can imagine, that's not a good church growth model, right? Um, <laughs> And so there's some resistance to that. But here, here's what it is. All right, we don't talk about that. We got other things we, pre- we require for people in order to be part of the community. What kind of religious background are you from? Have you proved to me that you're good enough? Have you proved to me that you really are serious about Jesus? Or do I, have I decided that because of your lifestyle or because of what you've done in the past, because you haven't done all, all the things I've done, why don't you go find a different place, right? And that's what they were doing. But he says to the church in Ephesus, we were strangers and aliens. We didn't belong on our own. Verse 12, it describes it in these three ways. Separated from Christ. Alienated from Israel. That's the community of God's people. And strangers to the covenants of promise. So Paul's doing the same thing he did in the first part regarding our identity. Hey, we're drifting. We've forgotten who we are. We started to think like individuals. We started to divide up and fragment as a community. And it's because the first thing we need to do is remember how we were created. That we were created from death to life. And then we need to remember how we, where we find our identity. That we were strangers and aliens. A bunch of individuals wandering around separated from Christ. But now, we're fellow members. We're in the same, we're in the same family. Now let's look at verse, um, verse 13 through 16. It says this. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This idea of the dividing wall of hostility, that meant something to them as well. It was basically like circumcision. So at the temple in Jerusalem, as people who weren't Jews started to want to worship the God of the Jews, Yahweh, they started to want to honor him, right, along with maybe their other gods, but maybe they became convinced he was the real God. They would let them come to give and to kind of pray and worship. But they put up this wall to keep the non-Jewish people, the uncircumcised, away from coming in because they weren't holy enough. They didn't want to corrupt their house, their community. So they put up this wall, and that wall was called the dividing wall of hostility. That was what's in mind here, that God's hostile towards you because of who you are, because of what you have done. Even people who were fearing God, they would keep outside. And so Paul says here, in Christ, God tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are welcome to the near presence of God. That's an amazing gift. And they're being reminded of that. Why? I'll tell you why I think. Because they were probably putting up walls again. And I know in our country we talk about walls a lot, right? That's a lot of stuff in the political issues right now. I'm not talking about that, though. We're talking about relational walls between the community of God that are built up because we're hostile towards one another. We become convinced that I know more than them. They know less than me. I am act better than them. They're acting wrong. And so families start to split. 
This community of God's people becomes weaker as we start to isolate into my identity and their identity, even though we all in Christ. We're all in Christ. All right, let's, we're going to come to an end in just a minute here. So there's, in this chapter of reminding them of who they are, they're being reminded, they're reminded of three, three big buts, all right? It's easy to remember that way. Three big buts, and here we go. Verse one is verse four. We read it earlier. It says, but God, being rich in mercy. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were separated from him. We were, we were slaves to sin, slaves to all that is this world, slaves to the enemy. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive, even when we were dead. Verse 13, we were separated. We were, we were aliens. We were strangers. But now in Christ, we are brought near, even though we were far off. And then verse 19 does it again. We were strangers, we were aliens, we did not belong in the community of God's people, but now we are fellow citizens and members of God's household. Let's look at 19 through 22. It says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul is saying, listen, look around. Look around the room. Look around at the people in your church. They belong. Why? Because of Jesus. They're, we're fellow members of the same household. We are fellow members of the same household and we are fellow citizens. And then it goes on, it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, in here, you, 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 find, you hear that, what's happened here? A lot of good news. We were dead, we're alive. We were, we were under the power of the prince of the power of the air, but now we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. All right. we, were, we, we were enslaved and we have been saved. Now, we were aliens and we have been adopted. We were separated, we've been brought near. All this good stuff. We are members of God's household. There's so many scriptures we could get into. In Philippians, it says that we are, our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't matter where we come from, right? We got the same citizenship now in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. In 1 John 3, 1, what, what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Who we will be will be revealed when Christ comes. We will be children of God forever. We are members of God's household. But the last thing here he says is that we are being, in whom the whole structure, in Christ, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. All right? So, so listen, first of all, it said Jesus is the cornerstone. I wanted to say, and, and Bishop would say the same thing, he is not the cornerstone of this church. I'm not the cornerstone of my church. I'm not the cornerstone of any church. All right? Jesus is. Every church that exists, exists because of Jesus. He's the cornerstone of the capital C church that is gathering right now all across this city, is gathering all across the state, across our nation, has been gathering all around the world all for the last 24 hours. Right. He's the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? This is a holy temple. Now I want to bring you two quick things on temple and then we'll wrap up. So bring up the first temple. So if you were a Christian in Ephesus and you heard you heard, you'd come to this Jesus, and you heard Paul say that God is building something, and what he's building is a temple, is a temple. The first thing you would have probably thought of is down the street, there's this giant building, the biggest building in your city, one of the actual seven wonders of the ancient world. 
the temple of Artemis. It's like 90 feet tall. I mean, it's so huge. It was the centerpiece of your entire city. The holy, great temple of Artemis. You can see the little sketches of people. This is not a still photo, by the way. It does not exist anymore. But this is a sketch of it. You can see how small the people look, maybe, uh, over, over on the stairs here. That was the center of their culture, their economy. It influenced everything about the city. That was what their city was known for. When you were sailing in and you looked over from the coast at the, at the peninsula or at the coast of Asia Minor, the first thing you saw was that temple. It was the thing everybody knew about in that city. Paul says, there's a new temple in town. There's a new temple, and it's not that one. But what's God building? tell you what he's building. He's building a temple. So what do you think about? You know why that temple was so huge? It was to demonstrate the glory of the God it was for. The temple was a place to demonstrate the glory of the God it existed to honor. Artemis. Paul says, you know why you exist? Your identity, you are a brick. And what you are a part of is a temple. And you, as a collection of bricks together, exist for the glory of God. For the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. So that temple would be in mind. And the second temple is the one you've probably heard of. The one in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem. Now we know that one was for the God of the Jews, the Yahweh. And it had been there for years. And that temple... Um, that temple, it, it, it was a place, they had a tabernacle, then they had a temple, and then it got torn down, and then they built another temple when the Jews came back to Jerusalem. And that's the one up when Paul is writing. And that temple really was about two things. That temple was where God's living presence was in the earth. That's what they believed. In that temple, in that house, was where God was on the earth among his people. Now we'll talk about this temple. I had a little problem, but... That was where God's presence lives. And the second thing is the temple of Jerusalem was meant to display how good and faithful their God was. To the reason they adorned it with gold and all this beauty, it was not supposed to make them look great. The idea was this is a demonstration of the goodness and faithfulness of God. So when Paul says God's building you into a temple, your identity is found together, not in isolation. And, And what your purpose is, 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 not, is not for me to fulfill my dreams and visions for my, my own life. Well, my purpose is, is found in this community of people who are a temple that exists to bring glory to God, that exists to influence the culture the way Artemis' temple was, that exists to be the place where God's presence lives, and that exists to demonstrate the goodness and faithfulness of our God. So there's four, four points here I want to bring up. As we wrap up, and they're all in one slide, so don't be scared. We are God's temple. We are where God's presence lives. So, quick little aside here. Not aside. Right in the center of it. They build the tabernacle when they're in the wilderness, the way God says to. They build it, and if you know the story, the presence of the Lord fills it. He moves in. He brings his stuff. He moves in, right? And the, the, how they know is that fire appears over it, right? Solomon's temple, he builds it the way God designs it. He builds a temple, set up the temple, he finishes it, and God brings his stuff, moves in. Here comes his glory. How do they know? Because fire shows up. Here's a little secret. When they built the third temple, that, that new one, nothing happened. 
No fire showed up, no glory of God, nobody fell on their faces, nobody died, nothing, right? Nothing. So they had an empty house. And the whole time they, they would look at that, and, and in the Jewish mindset, they, they were thinking like, hey, when is God going to move into his temple? Because he's not there. If he was, there'd be fire over it. And then Acts chapter 2, right? Jesus comes, and he, he comes and gathers up these stinky fishermen, and like the, probably the woman who washes feet, caught in adultery, might have been in the room. And there's, there's tax collectors and sinners that just followed this Jesus and believed his promise, and they're hanging out in a room in Jerusalem, down the street from this temple with no fire over it, and all of a sudden, something happens. And the promise of the Father comes, and all of a sudden, they look around, and what's over their heads? Fire. All of a sudden, they look around, wait, 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 you're telling me the fisherman over there, I mean, he's got like dirty sandals and he smells real bad. You're telling me he is where God's holy presence lives in the earth? Yes. Yes. Church, we are where God's presence lives in the world. And not this building. When you walk out of here, there's still a tongue of fire over your head. When you're at work on Tuesday, there's still fire over your head marking you as the place where God lives. How much does that influence the way we're living our lives? Third thing is we exist to display how great and how faithful our God is. And the fourth is our identity is found in community, not in isolation. So I'm going to wrap this up here and, and pray. But four questions for you to consider. Where are you finding your identity and worth right now? Core Faith Church, where are you finding your identity and worth? If it's in yourself, if it's in your accomplishment, your job, your house, your possessions. Honestly, even if it's found in just like this one gathering of believers, it's too small. You're part of something bigger. Second thing, are there ways you are living your life in isolation? Are there ways you are living your life in isolation? Third question, how is God calling you to engage more intentionally with his temple? To become more a part of what God is doing in the earth through his temple. And then I want you to think about this. And I'm going to pray. What does it look like Monday through Friday to connect your life with the purpose of God's temple in the earth? If you're not a pastor, you don't work at a church, you work somewhere else, what does it look like for you to live out your true identity as a part of what God has been doing in the earth for 2,000 years through Jesus? What does it look like for you to think about Tuesday as a time where you are carrying God's presence and existing as a part of his temple. You are a brick. You are a part of something bigger than what you ever could have imagined. Don't become entangled in the things of these, this world. Embrace the way of Jesus, the way of community, the way of belonging together. And I thank God for core faith. I thank God for these 17 years of his faithfulness. And I already thank God for all the years ahead of his ongoing faithfulness. Because one thing is absolutely true. God will never fail this community of believers. He will never abandon you. He will never fail you. He is doing something in the earth and you get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of it together and I'm grateful. So let me pray for us and then I'll hand it over. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you, God, that when we were dead, you made us alive. When we were, we were low and under the control of sin and death and the enemy, you raised us up and seated us with Christ. Father, thank you that when we were far off, you brought us near. Thank you that when we were strangers and aliens, you adopted us into the family. And God, I pray that you would anchor our hearts and our security and our identity in you. 
God, would you show us the way that we can, we can secure our hearts more, more certainly in you and your love and your grace. And God, also, will you show us ways that we can better work together, that we can better exist together as your temple in the earth. God, I thank you for this gathering of believers. And I thank you for the part they play in your big vision for the world and your vision even for the city. God, we thank you for your presence and your grace with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.